0: Well, Father, thank you for this good gathering today, and what a beautiful day you've given us. Thank you for all the ways that you encourage us and you strengthen us, that day by day and hour by hour we can count upon you for strength, for wisdom, for guidance. Father, today I ask in a special way that you would encourage the mothers that are present here. Some may be discouraged and defeated. Would you please encourage hearts? Thank you for your word that gives us practical and careful instruction. Help us to receive it well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Mom and Dad were watching TV when Mom said, I'm tired and it's getting late. I think I'll go to bed. She went to the kitchen to make sandwiches for the next day's lunches. Rinsed out the popcorn bowls. Took meat out of the freezer for supper. Then the following evening, for the following evening, checked the cereal box levels, filled the sugar container, put spoons and bowls on the table, and started the coffee pot brewing for the next morning. She then put some wet clothes in the dryer. Put a load of clothes into the wash. Ironed a shirt. Secured a loose button. She picked up the game pieces that were left on the table and put the telephone book back in the drawer. She watered the plants, emptied a wastebasket, and hung up a towel to dry. She yawned and stretched and headed for the bedroom. She stopped by the desk and wrote a note to the teacher, counted out some cash for the field trip, and pulled a textbook out from hiding under the chair. She signed a birthday card for a friend, addressed and stamped the envelope, and wrote a quick note for the grocery store. She put both near her purse. Mom then creamed her face, put on moisturizer, brushed and flossed her teeth, and trimmed her nails. Hubby called out from the living room I thought you were going to bed I'm on my way she said she put some water into the dog's dish and put the cat outside then made sure the doors were locked she looked into each one of the uh, in on the kids and turned out a bedside lamp hung up a shirt threw some dirty socks in the hamper had a brief conversation with the one that was still up doing homework in her own room she set the alarm laid out clothing for the next day straightened up the shoe rack She added three things to her list of things to do for tomorrow. About that time, the husband turned off the TV and announced to no one in particular, I'm going to bed. And he did. (laughs) So what's the moral of that little story? Uh, One of the morals is, is that a mom is not a dad. Aren't you thankful for your mother? And all that she means to your home and to your life and how she watches over us. This morning I want to invite you to turn to Proverbs chapter 31 and I have as my intention of our message time today to encourage mothers. I want this very much to be an encouraging message and not one that causes any kind of defeat or discouragement as we hold up this remarkable woman in Proverbs chapter 31, an account that is given, it says, at the beginning of chapter 31 of Proverbs, and you'll recall that Proverbs is part of the wisdom literature of our Bible, um, and it was written, most of it, by King Solomon, who early in his life, when God made appointed him king over Israel was given an opportunity by God to receive anything he wanted from God, and he humbled himself. He did not ask for riches, although God gave that to him, and he simply asked that God would give him wisdom. God granted him that request, and the testimony of Solomon, before his heart turned in his older years away from the Lord, the testimony of Solomon is that he was the wisest man that ever lived. Many think that it was during the middle season of his life that he wrote these Proverbs, a time in his life when he was still, uh, for the most part, following after God, and he had a great understanding of the world, and he had an insight that was given to him directly by God. And so Proverbs in our Bible, this book almost in the middle, you go to the book of Psalms, and then the next one is Proverbs, is exactly what it says it is. It is Proverbs, that is, axioms for life, most of the passages in Proverbs are not extended passages. It's, you can think of it if you read it much like a bullet pointed list. You've heard me often from the pulpit encourage, uh, particularly our men, but all of us to use the book of Proverbs as a daily reference. Um, If you don't know where to turn in your Bible to read your Bible on your own, just remember that Proverbs has 31 chapters. It's a book of wisdom. We all need wisdom. And you can just look at the calendar date. Today's the 11th of May, so you read Proverbs chapter 11. Tomorrow, if you skip it, Tuesday's the 13th, read the 13th. Whatever, just whatever day of the month it is, read that proverb for the day. And I don't think it's a mistake that God, under the direction of his Holy Spirit, guided uh, those who put scripture together that there's 31 chapters to match up with our calendar month. And at least we can think of it that way. You might see and notice on the beginning of your chapter that it was, the, these are the words of King Lemuel. King Lemuel, we're not so familiar with that name. Uh, Jewish, ancient Jewish tradition uh, believes and, and holds to the idea that that was another name. Possibly a name that Solomon's mother used for him, but that that was a name for Solomon. And it is understood uh, and widely accepted that Solomon himself wrote this passage. You'll notice if you read the chapter, Proverbs chapter 31, that verses 1 through 9 um, are words of warning that Solomon recorded that he remembers his mother telling him, largely captured by, Stay away from wine and stay away from immoral women. Two things that Solomon did not heed. And you can read um, uh, his tragic account in the historical books where uh, Solomon's heart turned away from the Lord largely because he involved himself in illicit relationships, um, not just a few, but hundreds. And Solomon is known probably more for his many wives and concubines than he is his wisdom. When we approach verse 10 of chapter 31... We have a final section in our book of Proverbs, and it focuses on this most remarkable woman. Your Bible might say the virtuous woman. Uh, My Bible is entitled The Woman Who Fears the Lord is the title break right before verse 10. Now, it occurs to me as we look at this passage, and we are detouring today from the Gospel of Matthew. If you're new to us, um, and you're not attending a church regularly, we'd love to have you. We're working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. We're a simple Bible church. We, we preach, we pray, we sing, we shake hands, we take an offering, of course. And we try to take good care of one another and raise up our kids to love the Lord. But we're preaching through, on Sunday mornings, the Gospel of Matthew And I know I'm receiving a great challenge from it. We're in chapter 5, finishing up the Beatitudes. And Lord willing, we'll return there next week. I thought it appropriate this Mother's Day morning that we... Uh, encourage our mothers here today, but it occurs to me that this passage uh, can be somewhat overwhelming and when we hold up this virtuous woman and all that she represents and all that King Lemuel writes about her, whether he is a conglomeration of his mother and his favorite wife as she raised up some of their kids or whatever, whoever she is, we don't know exactly who this virtuous woman is, um, we do recognize that it is a lofty, lofty, aspiration to live out uh, the lifestyle and and to emulate the character qualities of this woman. So I was thinking of it kind of like this. Um, This is a very homey illustration, but I think you'll understand what I'm saying. I like to play basketball. I have admitted from this pulpit the great distress um, that occurred in me when I turned about 40 and I recognized I would never be drafted into the NBA. Um, in my imagination, um, I should have been there. Um, I love to play ball, and in my imagination, I'm a pretty good ball player. It's pretty much an imaginary thing, so don't disturb it. I do love to run the floor, pass the ball, and um, now just imagine if you wanted to improve your game. You could apply this to, to cooking, sewing, or golf, or whatever you're you're bass fishing, whatever you're into. So you sit down and you want to watch a DVD on how to get better at your ball game. How to get better. Listen, you don't want someone like me making a video for guys like me. What do you want? You want, I'll date myself, but my favorite player, Magic Johnson. You want to, you want to, you know, and make those no-look passes and how to, you know, your, your LeBron James kind of guys. You want to watch their video. What? You know you stink. You you know you're no good at your game. You know you're not Magic Johnson, but you don't want to watch a watch a third string bench sitter tutoring you on basketball. That's kind of the mindset of this chapter. You know you know of all people you don't have it all together. You know how hard it is just to get through the week sometimes. You know how many times moms that you've failed. And you know you yelled at your kids again today and you weren't going to do that today and so forth and so on. And then you open to Proverbs 31 and it's just about overwhelming, this perfect woman that's here. Don't look at it that way. Don't be distressed or discouraged. Look at it as someone that can encourage you. Someone that when you look at your game, you want to improve. Let's hold her up as a model today. I want to suggest that there are eight qualities um, that we would very quickly bounce into. We will not be exhaustive with this passage. In your bulletin it says that we will start with verse 25. We're actually going to begin with verse 10. I'd like to read the text. It is interesting to note that in the Hebrew Bible, and your Old Testament is written almost entirely in Hebrew, um, that in the Hebrew Old Testament we are in poetic literature here. Okay, This is wisdom literature, Proverbs is, but it's also part of the poetical books. Okay, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. They're poetical books. Okay, Job is included in that. And in this particular chapter, as they wrap up this book of Proverbs, when you pick up at verse 10 and read through verse 31, it is interesting in the Hebrew Bible, you don't see it in the translation into English, but it's an acrostic poem. And it's, they've taken, the writer took, Solomon took, we'll attribute this to Solomon, he took the Hebrew alphabet of 22 letters, and he started with, you know, A, and went to Z, and I'm not sure there's an A and Z in Hebrew, I don't know Hebrew, Um, I struggle with my English, but um, in your Hebrew Bible... You would begin with A and go to Z, and every verse, every section of this begins with the next letter in the alphabet in successive turn all the way from the beginning to the end of the alphabet. And so it was written to be kind of catchy. It was written to have a sequence and a a poetic flow to it. And that's kind of interesting, and that is lost in the English translation. Let's read it, and and you'll recognize, if you're unfamiliar with this passage, you'll recognize what I mean by this being somewhat of an overwhelming model to hold up before yourself in your mothering. He writes in verse 10, An excellent wife, who can find? She is more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. I think that's a reference to shopping in this passage. Um, I'm pretty sure shopping is in this passage. Let me comment also, since I've interrupted us. Recognize that we have, what, somewhere around 3,000 plus years of time gap from when this was written to when we're receiving it today. So obviously there are cultural ramifications there are applications to her life that don't fit us. We don't go a-seeking merchant ships. We go to Kohl's with our Kohl's bucks, right? We, we do things a little differently. But you'll see that there's application. And so know that there's a difference here, of course. And we're not to go home and figure out how to do wool and flax, unless you want to, of course. I don't even know exactly what all that is. She, it has to do with, of course, weaving, clothing material, and so forth. Making thread and things that we don't do in our culture. We acknowledge that. Yet there are great applications. Verse 13 again. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. See, she goes to the gym. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She's an incredible woman. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and she reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household. For all of her children of her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing. I like this line, and she laughs at the time to come. She's prepared. Reminds me of my mother and all of her canning. Man, I used to have to peel peaches that were scorched and canned peaches, and I... Said I would never do that, and now I intend to do it, but I never do. (laughs) And blueberries and tomatoes, to have some of those preserves back. She laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom. She's prudent. And the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She's polite and appropriate. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of Idleness, she's productive. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Notice this. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. She's praiseworthy. This is what he says, verse 29. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. But charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her. In the gates, interesting, isn't it? That's how Proverbs comes to a close, elevating this most remarkable lady. What I'd like to do is to simply point out as a as a model for us today eight characteristics or qualities of this praiseworthy wife and mother. I um, want to make a challenge too before we dig in and get going that. I trust that our boys and girls and our young people who live at home and even our young adults or middle-aged adults who still live at home under your parents' roof, that you would have ears to hear the message today. I want to encourage mothers, I don't want to discourage at all by holding up this lofty model, but I also want to remind our young people here that part of the code of honor for your own life is that you would honor your mother. We'll talk more about that in a minute. The first thing I want you to see in this profile of a virtuous woman or this, this recognizable model for us is her moral integrity. Number one, her moral integrity. Let's let our eyes go back to verse 10. As Lemuel writes, he says, An excellent wife who can find, well, he should know, she is far more precious than jewels. This is the English Standard Version that I'm reading out of. For many years, we used the New International Version here. And in the New International Version, that phrase, an excellent wife, is translated a wife of noble character. This idea of her excellence has to do with her moral integrity. The idea that she is a quality person. That she is absolutely reliable and pure in her moral integrity. A noble character, a person of rare quality is seen because she is far more precious than jewels. This, this woman doesn't come along every day. And so that's one thing to take encouragement from. Uh, you'll see that um, when his wife praises her at the end of the chapter, he will acknowledge that she is a person who is far and few between. It's hard to find a person like her. We're not all like her and we know it, but we're going to be encouraged by her. And the first thing we see is her moral integrity. We recognize, secondly, that this moral integrity, her noble character, this excellence with which she lives her life uh, morally and in every way is the very foundation for number two, verses 11 and 12, her marital fidelity, her marital fidelity. Look what it says, verse 11, the heart of her husband trusts in her. What a great testimony. He's away from her all day. He's not suspicious. He's not following her around. He's not double-checking the odometer on the car. He's not sneaking her phone, sneaking into her email. He trusts her. The heart of her husband trusts in her. And because of her, he will have no lack of gain. That's her marital fidelity. What a good model for us. She doesn't flirt with other men. She doesn't speak unkindly or inappropriately about her husband when he's not around. She doesn't joke about him being worth more to her dead than alive. She doesn't talk inappropriately with her girlfriends about embarrassing things that they don't need to know about her husband. He trusts in her. Her moral integrity is intact and her marital fidelity is built upon that. And her husband loves her. Well, we read on through the passage and I reference that there's cultural ramifications and actually it is interesting to actually study the historical context and and to draw truth out of the passage based upon exactly understanding what was happening in the context of her culture and, and why she did some of these things, wool and flax and the merchant ships and so forth. For our purposes this morning, it serves us to note point number three in our observation of this remarkable woman is that she had a tremendous financial capacity. We're going to represent her business prowess and her productivity with the phrase financial capacity. Notice that she did go shopping. Verse 14, like the ships of a merchant. She brings her food from afar. She knew where to go to make the best deals. She knew, like I said, how to use those Kohl's bucks. By the way, you know, if you use Kohl's bucks appropriately, you can just get stuff free. Isn't that logical? Because I know that if you don't use it, you lose it. And if you if you have these Kohl's bucks, you've got to get down there and you've got to spend them. And it seems to me that if they really work, eventually Kohl's will just give you stuff. But I haven't been able to quite figure that out yet. But it's still... You got to use them or it's, a, it's bad stewardship because that's, that's money going down the drain if you don't use those coals, bucks, but whatever works, you, you have this. But you know what, this point here, notice that she evidently knew how to, the whole area, even from afar, she knew how to go a distance to work bargains and to find good deals. You notice um, in verse 19... Uh, point number four of our observation is, is a, a continual or a normal productivity of her life. She rises while it's yet night and she provides food for her household. She's a hard worker. Her lamp doesn't go out at night, it says at the end of, of verse 18. And in verse 18, we're also reminded about her financial capacity, where it says there that she perceives that her merchandise is profitable. She recognizes that she has some ability to produce goods that are marketable. It's not Wrong for a wife to work. I think you have to be careful to just say that it's carte blanche, that it's really wrong for a wife to work. As to her working outside of the home, this woman evidently left her home many times to work and to to work deals and to, to barter and to produce goods and to sell her goods. But clearly in the passage, While her husband, who is esteemed, as we see later in the passage, her husband, who is esteemed by the community, where is he? He's not at home. He's sitting in the city gates, another cultural ramification, another cultural implication. He's a leader in the community. He's helping govern the community. Or he's transacting business where the men gathered to transact business at the city gates, wheeling, dealing, trading, working, leading, making decisions, adjudicating... And clearly in the passage, it is the mother who is the one that makes this household work. And so I do think that we have an obligation not to neglect that responsibility. Clearly, and I can remember, I've referenced this before... Uh, a season in our lives when I was in about 4th, 5th, and 6th grade in our little Bible church in South Chicago, and we lived in a little parsonage there, and I walked to the public school about 10 blocks away, about a mile away. I walked to school, and I would actually come home for lunch. at had a whole hour. would walk home, and and my dad would be home. He was a pastor. He had flexible hours a little bit. Pastors only work on Sundays, you know, and so he would be there to <laughs> fix lunch for us, and and my mom had to work. This little Bible church couldn't support us very well. And money was very tight. And my mom worked at a couple different jobs. And this particular time, she was in the personnel department at a hospital. And when I would come home for lunch, I really liked my dad a lot. You know you know that here. And my dad could fix really great grilled cheese sandwiches because he often put fried bacon in them. That works well. Yeah. My dad also taught me to fry peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Try that sometime. That's not a bad deal. But you know, when I would come home and my mom wasn't there, there's just something about a house where only dad is that it just doesn't work quite the same. You know what I'm talking about? And then I'd go my dad would get busy for the afternoon and then I'd walk home and mom still wasn't going to be home until after 5 o'clock and I'd get home at 3.30 and you know the greasy frying pan still on the stove and the dirty dishes and things are disheveled and even though I was pretty much a slob in 4th and 5th grade, I didn't like that. I mean, listen, you don't have to spend billions of taxpayer dollars at some major university to do a project that ends up on the cover of Time magazine to realize that men are different than women. Duh. (laughs) All you have to do is hang around your dad And then hang around your mom. There's a difference there. And there's something about the way my mom would oversee the house that was a very good thing compared to my dad. And I know that some of you are single parents and this is not a put down. Life takes twists and turns that are so difficult. and The residuals of sin impact us and you're doing the best you can. May God bless you. But in God's design, and we're not embarrassed of God's design, that there's one man and one woman, they marry, they have a family, and how beautifully that all fits together in every way. And this is a great thing here that she oversees, but I do want to emphasize that in her financial capacity and in her normal lifestyle of productivity, this woman was all over the place. She could do business. It even says in here that she sold land. And bought land. She burned the candle on both ends. She was up early. She was up late. So we see her moral integrity, her marital fidelity, this financial capacity with this great productivity in her life. Notice verse 20 then, as we look back at the passage, she opens her hand to the poor and she reaches out her hands to the needy. She had a sense of social sensitivity. A generosity socially. She noticed people in need. How powerful is that example? I told you just a few weeks ago about the memory I have of a cold winter's day in northern Illinois. In that same little parsonage where we live. My mom looking out the window in the middle of the morning. And a boy running in our backyard with no pants on. Because his father had been beating him how my mother went out and gathered him in and got clothing for him and took care of him and warmed him and fed him. That's this woman. She knows how to take care of needy people. Socially, she was very sensitive. There was a generosity that characterized her life. I want you to notice too in verse 21 as we read on through the passage that she was not afraid of snow for her household. That's a good phrase, isn't it? She's not afraid for it to snow. For all her household were clothed in scarlet. The idea there is a double thickness, a double thickness in the material. She knew the kinds of material to make clothing for her children and her family, that they would be warm and bed coverings, verse 22, to take care of everyone in this ancient Palestine, in the high elevations particularly. It was not uncommon that it would snow in wintertime. She provided, number six, an essential security, an essential security for her household, providing for them in cold weather, taking good care of them as her husband sits, verse 23, and is known at the city gates. I'm telling you, he was not half the man he would be if it weren't for this woman. It's true for most of us men. Well, she makes these linen garments, she sells them. I like verse 25 where it says, she laughs at the time to come, she's very prepared. She opens her mouth with wisdom. She's very prudent. She's very kind and proper, teaching kindness on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household. Our eyes go to verse 28 and number 7. We see a parental humility is characterized in this home. A parental humility. Let me explain what I mean by that. It says here, now listen young people, her children rise up and call her blessed or blessed. I would suggest that the greatest joy a mother can know is to see her children grow in wisdom from her teaching and then grow up in their own adult lives to look at her and to praise her as the source of of their success. And when a mother receives that kind of praise, it does nothing but humble us as parents. When we as fathers and mothers have children who acknowledge that our teaching has impacted their lives and they're living out the wise instruction of a godly mother and they acknowledge that with words and please do that, young people. Say it. It's so humbling. There can't be a greater joy in a mother's life than to raise up her child and to have that child look at her and say, Mama, you were right. Everything you said is correct. And my life is fruitful and productive and blessed because of you. That's parental humility when you hear that kind of thing. Finally, we notice in verse 30, a spiritual maturity. A spiritual maturity. It says here that not only does her children... Do her children praise her, but also her husband? He says, verse 29, that many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. There's the inference that this is a rare woman. This is not a common or ordinary catch. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, verse 30, is to be praised. There it is, number eight, that spiritual maturity. What is this phrase, the fear of the Lord? A lot of people don't like that phrase, the fear of God. Maybe you were raised in some kind of a fundamentalist home where, where God was represented as some kind of ogre to you. I'm fairly certain that most parents don't try to teach their children an inappropriate concept of God, but sometimes that can happen. But the Bible speaks regularly and often about the importance of having a fear of God. What is this? The fear of God, as represented in Scripture, is an absolute overwhelming awe of who God is to the degree that I am overwhelmed by His holiness. That I recognize his sovereign rule over the world. I recognize my own minuscule smallness in his eyes. I recognize that he is the divine creator. That he is one who is a God of expectation. And that I don't make up the rules, he does. And that when you live in obedience to his word, that it works. And I have this awe and this fear of of the righteous judgment of God or the fallout of sin in my life and I want to please God. I don't want to stand before God as my judge. I want to stand before God as my loving Heavenly Father. And so I have a fear of God. I acknowledge His authority in my life. I recognize that what He says is right and true. And I tremble before Him in an appropriate manner. Not that I am afraid of Him. In fact, Scripture is clear that we are invited in Jesus' name right into His presence. We who are not holy. We who are not worthy to enter the holy of holies. But because of our high priest Jesus Christ who went to the cross for us and shed his blood, the perfect spotless lamb on the rugged cross at Calvary. That we can go to the cross, we can lay down the burden of our sin and... And we can receive a righteousness that is not our own. That Jesus kept the law for us and he saves us from our sin. And when God the Father looks at us, when we've come to Christ in the cross, we've admitted our sinfulness, we've acknowledged Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, he saves us, he makes us his child, he positions us in Christ in such a way that we can go right into the presence of God and we have a holiness that it allows us to be there and that holiness is what is a gift from Christ A gift from God through Christ. And we've given Christ our sinfulness and he paid the price for it. And he's given us in return by no merit or works of our own his holiness. And we're saved from our sin and we can come into the presence of a holy God. Praise God for that. That's right. And so we have a fear of God though, even though he's a loving heavenly father and he's a good shepherd and he cares for his sheep. Yet there is a fear and awesome respect. Respect. He's not, the, he's not the, you know, the old man upstairs. And we should have this, this kind of a trembling awe of God. That this woman understood who God was. And so spiritually, and only spiritually mature people have that. We have this interesting phrase in verse 30 that charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And the idea there, I don't think, is that we're not supposed to work on ourselves. I think it's very appropriate to try to look nice. It's not wrong to cover up the gray, you know, it's not wrong to try to fight the flab that, you know, and to fit the clothing in such a way that it presents yourself in the best light. But we would recognize, and I had a little outline written in one of my older Bibles that I ran into this this week as I was looking at this passage. And I don't remember if I came up with it. I don't think I did. I think I must have jotted it down, but I didn't notate where I got it from. And it was uh, three reasons why charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. The first is that fashion is fickle. Why is charm deceitful? Because and beauty vain it's it's emptiness because you can never get there you can never quite attain Uh, you recognize that it's a market-driven system right and that the new catalogs come out and that the new Kohl's bucks will be there for all the new clothes you have to have next year because now orange is the new black or pink is the new gray or whatever and you i don't know this stuff but i just know that what you have in your closet right now you just can't wear (laughs) i have nothing what do you mean well, that's so out this summer. Because why? Because there's been a huge effort by high market, high money people to make you completely dissatisfied with what you have and how you look so that you'll go with those Coles Buck and buy more. Because fashion is very fickle and it changes with the season and next year's won't work for this year. And this year is different than last year. So you're going to end up just driving yourself crazy. Eh, It doesn't mean that you can't buy fashionable clothes. Don't read into what I'm saying. I know that I shouldn't probably even comment on this stuff, but I thought you might want to know what the Bible means when it says charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, and that's my job to explain the Bible. Number one, fashion is fickle. Number two, beauty is fake. Oh, I was thinking about that. Do you know how much artificial color is represented in this audience today? (laughs) We're not going to point any of it out, but there's a lot. And you know it, and I know it, and a whole lot of money is spent on making your eyes green this week and blue next week and making your hair this color now and that color now and and making sure the grays don't show. And I want to tell you something. I've never seen anything so non-negotiable as a hair appointment. (laughs) Not to give away any secrets or anything. (laughs) But I'm telling you, you understand exactly what I'm saying. I'm going to get off this one. (laughs) The third reason charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, not only is fashion fickle and beauty fake, but aging is flabby. I didn't know how to work that one out very well, but um, you know, the fact of the matter is, you work so hard to look good, and well, the next thing you know, your skin's sagging. Next thing you know, stuff's just not staying where it's supposed to stay. And there you are. What are you going to do? And 53 is old. You can't stop the aging process, and we live in a culture that glamorizes youth. And where women in their 60s and 70s make headlines because they look 30. And somehow to look 30 is more important than looking 70. And the next thing you know, you're driving yourself crazy because you're letting the world dictate to you what is beauty, what is charm. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3, to not be all caught up in the adorning of braiding of hair and the wearing of gold jewelry but that the beauty that really counts is that of an inner beauty, a quiet and gentle spirit that comes from godliness in Christ Jesus. You know that kind of beauty. How worthwhile that is. A woman who fears the Lord, now that's one to be praised. Proverbs says in another another chapter that that a beautiful woman without discretion is like a jewel in a pig's snout. That's a good proverb. See, proverbs are like that. You're supposed to like, what does that mean? And you're supposed to think about it. It's a proverb. That reminds us of her moral integrity and her marital fidelity and her beauty that her husband sees in her because she, of her godliness. That it's not all dependent on externals and... What that proverb means is that, yes, there might go a beautiful woman, but without moral discretion and without the fear of God and without a spirit of godliness, it's like a jewel wasted by putting it on the ring of a hog to keep it from grubbing in the dirt and getting under the fence. Kind of a waste of a good jewel. Well, there we are. Those are eight qualities with her spiritual maturity. Eight qualities that we can point out before we go home, though, let's just take a minute and, and let's ask ourselves, okay, so um, how do I implement this and how, do this, how does this apply across an a audience like this where we have men and women together and boys and girls together and we're holding up motherhood, we're using this lady as a model, as an example to us. I want to address the young people first, but here's a few applications in in closing out our message today. How does this poem of the virtuous woman impact our lives today? Well, number one, it it should motivate our children. Our children need motivation. Our children need motivation. What do I mean by this? I want you to look at this woman and the response of her children in verse 28, and I'm speaking in children or youth, anybody who's in their household with their mother, with their father, and we know that that age has ever expanded up into the 30s and 40s even now. More uh, young adults are staying single and staying home, and if you're in your parents' household, then you are obligated to honor them. If you don't want to honor them, get out of the house. But I want to encourage young people, and you children and young people, I want you to listen closely to your pastor here for a minute. You need to understand, and you need to be motivated by this passage to be like her children. You need to speak words that are praiseworthy to your mother. You need to recognize that if you are going to live under the umbrella of the blessing of God, that you need to honor your mother. Remember what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. He said, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. He goes on in verse 2 to say, honor your father and your mother, that it may go well with you. And that this is based on a promise. What's he referencing? That is almost a direct quote that the Apostle Paul made in Ephesians chapter 6, coming out of Ephesians 5, where he's talking about family relationships, and then he moves from husband and wives to children in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. It's almost a direct quote, word for word, from Exodus chapter 20, when Moses received the Ten Commandments from God and gave it to the children of Israel before they entered the Promised Land. And one of the... Commandments, The sixth, I believe, was children, obey your parents in the Lord that you may live long in the land. What was he talking about? It was God's direct instruction to the children of Israel to raise up their children, to follow after God, and that if they followed after God as they entered the promised land, things would go well with them. If they didn't follow after God, then ruination would be their cause. Now the Apostle Paul is quoting, now think about this, the Apostle Paul is quoting to the New Testament church, Old Testament language, given under the law, given under Moses, and he's applying it to the church today in Ephesians chapter 6. We're not about to enter a promised land other than heaven By no merit of our own, by the grace of God through his salvation in Christ, heaven is our promised land, but here we are and here we live. And most of us are Gentiles, not Jews, to whom the law was given in Exodus 20. So what's Paul saying? He's applying a spiritual principle to young people. Obey your parents, honor your father and mother, that it will go well with you. There is a spiritual application that in the same way that the Israelite young people, if they honored their father and mother, would have the blessing of God upon their lives in the promised land of Canaan, that today as you live your life, if you honor your father and your mother, and you obey them, then the blessing of God will be upon you and the converse is true that if you do not honor your father and mother and you do not obey them, you can mark it down, go carve it in the oak tree, write it in your little black book, put it in a sharpie on your arm. You are outside the blessing of God and your way will not be easy. In fact, sin will consume you and your life will go hard and you will groan inside yourself, young person, someday for not honoring your mother. Just mark it down. You heard it today. It's what the Bible says. The Bible's true. The Bible always works. So listen to me. If you're a young person and you think inside yourself, I can't stand my mother, knock it off. What is wrong with you? You've got a mother that is working hard to provide for you. Yeah, but she won't let me get my new smartphone. Good. Good. Ready to smash the dumb phone that you already have. I recognize that we have all kinds of ramifications from our culture, all kinds of things. But we've got all kinds of messages coming our way. But young people listen to me. This is this is a this is a truism. This is the word of God to you today. And as the virtuous woman served her household and raised up her children and her children acknowledged the gift from God that she was and they spoke they spoke edifying Praise words to her. They spoke into her heart and into her life, and they praised her for who she was and all that she meant to them. They were the winners. They will receive the fallout of the blessing of God that you don't get if you don't honor your father and mother. It's true. I can give you testimony after testimony after testimony of 30 years of ministry of young people who are too stinking smart, especially when they were 19 and a college sophomore. To obey and honor their father and their mother. they Every one of them lived to regret it. So lesson number one today is for young people to be motivated. Our children need motivation. That's one lesson. Lesson two, our young men need a model. Our young men need a model. And some young man saying here, you're exactly right. I'm looking for a model. But not that kind of a model. You need an example, Okay. The second thing we can get out of this message is that in our culture, listen to me, young men, are unmarried. I'm talking to the unmarried young men who want to be married someday. You live in a world that is, has that is got it all wrong. The things that are held up before you as to what the ideal woman is to look like and act like and be like almost unequivocally, almost across the board, what Hollywood presents and what the media presents and what we are bombarded with in movies and concepts of what woman is to look like is almost never wife material. In fact, most of them are imaginary. They don't exist, what the world's showing you. And so, young men, take Proverbs chapter 31 Sit at a counter and surprise your mother to death and say, Mom, let's do Bible study together. Oh, Pastor Ray I'd never do that. Your mom would love it. How do you think this looks today? How do you think this, this passage translates from this incredible woman of Proverbs 31 into the woman I'm looking for for my wife today? Mom, will you help me find my wife that's based on this? This is the kind of model example I'm talking about. Not only do our children need motivation, but our young men need a model. I want to tell you something, young men. You'll spare yourself a heap big trouble. If you just never date or marry anybody your mom and dad don't approve of. Period. Number three, our young women need a mentor. Our young women need a mentor. How is this passage valuable to us today? You young women are confused about roles. Am I allowed to work? Am I do this? Can I let a man tell me what to do? Am I getting paid as much as a man? We've got all kinds of gender issues going on in our culture and most, most of our culture mocks the model that the scripture holds up for the role of a man and the role of a woman. I tell you again, the Bible won't let you down. Don't be embarrassed of your Bible. God has a plan. He created us and it works. And you young women, you want to know how to grow up and what to be like. Sit down and try to figure this passage out and apply it to your life and and let this woman in Proverbs 31 be your mentor. Let the Spirit of God teach you through her life. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5 tell the older women to teach the younger women how to be keepers at home and how to love their husbands and how to live orderly lives and how to walk in godliness. That's the task of older women to younger women. The Apostle Paul never taught Timothy or Titus as pastors to teach young women. Not too dumb, was he? He tells the pastor to teach the old men, the old women, and the young men, and he tells the old women to teach the young women. He wasn't turning his young pastors loose to teach young women. He knew better than that. Old women, you define yourself, teach young women. Let's add er to that, okay? Does that make you feel better? Older women. (laughs) So you're older than someone else, then you're old woman to them. And when you were 17, 33-year-old women were old. And people having their 20th year high school reunion were ancient when you were 17. You've got something to offer young women if you don't have a mentor in your life use this older woman in chapter 31. She's about 4,000 years old. That's good. <laughs> Finally, and we need to close, not only do our children need motivation to honor their mothers, our young men need a model, our young women need a mentor, some of you wives need a makeover. Some of you wives, are you need a makeover, and you're, you're not You're not productive. And you are passive. And social media dominates your lives. And you can't talk to your children because you got a phone up on your ear all the time or you're always on media. Whatever the ramifications are of this culture in your life, use this woman in Proverbs 31 as a makeover. Glean from it the dynamics that you've failed at or you are weak at. Don't let it defeat you. Let it motivate you. Finally, number five, some of us husbands need a major mouth change We need a major mouth change. I want you to notice in chapter 30, in chapter 31, verse 30, excuse me, at the end of 28, where it says, her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. That sentence is interrupted with a a colon. And verse 29 is how he praises her. It's a direct quote. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Is it any wonder that this woman loves to wake up early in the morning and get to work? Because she can't wait to hear her husband tell her how great she is again. And when is the last time you've told your wife how great she is? Listen, caustic, harsh, sharp, negative, put-down words defeat the Spirit. They suppress us. I'm not talking about the power of positive thinking at all. I'm talking about Christ-like manner, Christ-like words. And some of us need to really change the way we talk to our wives. We need to figure out her love language. And like this guy, somewhere along the line, figured out, you are an excellent wife and you surpass them all. Unbelievable how he builds her up. Your words can tear down or your words can build up. And some of us men need a mouth makeover. You've heard the often told story of Winston Churchill at a social dinner where they decided to go around the table and hear from everyone as to who they would like to be in their next life. And Winston Churchill wisely, when it was his turn, said, I would just like to be Mrs. Churchill's second husband. Let's pray. Father, we... um, Acknowledge our failures. We are so grateful for your grace. We acknowledge our need of a savior from our sin and the ultimate model in Jesus Christ who gave himself up for us that we who are so lost and dead in sin can have newness of life. Father, would you help us to learn how to apply our Bibles to everyday living? And for the mothers and wives who are here today and women who are defeated and discouraged, maybe overwhelmed by our culture, would you please just motivate them? May this wonderful lady of Proverbs 31 be their mentor. Father, would you grab a hold of the hearts and minds of our boys and girls and our young people and would you overwhelm them with the reality of the horrible, sinful nature of speaking unkindly to their mothers, of disregarding their counsel, of ignoring their wisdom, and help our young children realize the value and the power of praising their mother and father. Help us husbands to love our wives, to use kind words. Father, build your church. Help us to go from here and not soon forget. May your Holy Spirit continue to grind on us and work in us, bringing these things to mind. Change our hearts. is our prayer today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.